HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Steward, equipping regenerative farms with the capital they need to grow. Learn more at gosteward.com. Hi there, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So before we jump into today's show, I have some big news to share. After three and a half years and more than 100 episodes, yes, I counted them, today's episode will be my last as the host of The Farm Report. I want to say that I'm so grateful to Heritage Radio Network for giving me the opportunity to get these conversations about agriculture and the food system out into the world over the past few years, and to the many guests who came on the show to share their stories. And I'm especially grateful to you, my listeners, for tuning in. Really, thank you. Going forward, I'll be focusing even more on my role as a reporter covering the food system at Civil Eats. So if you want to follow my work, please do visit civileats.com. That's C-I-V-I-L-E-A-T-S dot com. You can read my stories there and sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss a thing. I'd also love to stay in touch on social media. You can follow me and my reporting on Instagram or Twitter. On both, my handle is Lisa Elaine H. And as for the Farm Report, this podcast is one of Heritage Radio Network's original shows, and it will continue on. Stay tuned for announcements as HRN works on finding the perfect host to take my place. And you can expect special features and upcoming episodes with guest host Kat Johnson, an HRN alum. Okay, now to the show. Humans have used fermentation to preserve crops and add flavor and health benefits to their diets for thousands of years. Since 2015, Sarah Canizio and Isaiah Billington have been putting their own stamp on that age-old tradition with Keep Well Vinegar, based just outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Especially where we are, where very little grows in the winter, the key to eating seasonally in a way that really supports farmers is preservation, and Sarah and Isaiah do it with hard work and deep thought and care. They partnered directly with small organic farms to turn apples, ginger, persimmons, peaches, and so much more into specialty vinegars. They turned farro into miso and soybeans into soy sauce, 
bottling the Mid-Atlantic's seasonal bounty in endless ways. The best chefs in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and increasingly far beyond now use their products. And thanks to their backgrounds as pastry chefs, Sarah fills their Instagram feed with recipes and tutorials that demonstrate how to bake with vinegars. Think upside-down fig gingerbread cake, bread-and-butter pickle rolls, sticky maple pumpkin buns. There's so much. I hope you enjoy our conversation about making vinegar, working with farmers, and why they do what they do. Okay, I'm here with Sarah Canizio and Isaiah Billington, the masterminds and makers behind Keepwell Vinegar. Sarah and Isaiah, welcome to the Farm Report. Hi. Thank you very much for having Thanks, us. Lisa. Um, I'm so excited to record this episode with you, um, not only because you are my friends, so that's fun, um, <laughs> but um, you're also incredibly smart um, people doing really great work. And, you know, I was thinking about this before we started, like, you're not sitting around thinking about how to support sustainable farms or how to create healthy food. Like, the two of you are doing it all on your own, like sourcing ingredients, making the product, marketing the product, selling the product. It's it's pretty insane what you do um, with Keep Well, and we're going to talk about all of that. Um, like, what did you what did you do today? That would be a fun place to start. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Mondays right, are mo- today is Monday. <laughs> yeah. Monday is always yeah. a big ship out day. You know, we never really thought when we opened up the business that we would be. Um, shipping all of our creation and doing a lot of web sales and stuff, but it, that is the reality of, of our situation. Um, and there are really, really cool people that are role models of ours that refuse to do that. And I think that that was always something that we aspired to do. But once we got in the moment, it felt like, I, I don't know. It just felt like, uh, we couldn't really tell people that they can't cook with our stuff. Um, so, as you know, I sent vinegar and miso to restaurants and retailers and just, you know, people, homes, <laughs> um, all day today. <laughs> yeah. Like packing boxes and, yep. yeah. Yeah. So, he was doing that on the one side, and then I was kind of organizing, you know, orders and making sure that they're all kind of going out to the right person. And then I had a couple of batches of Koji going at the same time and, you know, juggling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot in every day. And then, you know, some days you're doing more production, right. And, mm-hmm. and we're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to get into all of that. Um, but I, I just thought, you know, I figured you, you were running around all day. So um, I, I think it's important to um, remember that I'm making you t- spend the time <laughs> talking to me and I appreciate it. <laughs> no, it's always good. We always come out on the other end of a conversation like this with a, a renewed appreciation or a, a renewed perspective for what we do. And, you know, it we can get pretty insular really quickly with just the two of us. And so it's <laughs> it's really important to have somebody else poke it and prod it every once in a while. Yeah, you. I mean, you know, you do start to sort of get tunnel vision and what you're doing and you forget I mean even you sort of even forget like where the stuff is actually going to and it's kind of nice to talk about like wow this is going to restaurants and to individuals and it's you know going to somewhere in California and they're going to be using it and so it's just nice to 
stop and think instead of just putting <laughs> putting a head down and getting lost. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to to be the one doing the prodding. And <laughs> so, so, so are we. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about the, the beginning of Keep Well Vinegar. So, um, you know, just, I, I don't know, um, either of you, you can decide who can sort of tell the story of like Isaiah the genesis always of takes this one. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about like the idea, like how, why vinegar? How did the idea first come about? Well, so Sarah and I worked together at a restaurant called Woodbury Kitchen, um, for years and years. And uh, we had kind of a, f- a really fun and, and sort of unusual position in the restaurant in that we didn't participate in service every night. Uh, our job was more or less to take every process um, that we could think of, uh, every process for which we could find appropriate local inputs and um, figure out a way to take something that we would have bought from a broadline vendor and make it something that we made in house. So we dried fruit, we canned jam and pickles and tomatoes. We uh, made bread, pasta, ice cream, whatever it was that we wanted to cook. Uh, that was sort of our responsibility. And toward the end of our time together there at Woodbury, we really got into fermentation. Of course, you know, lacto-fermentation with kimchi and sauerkraut is kind of the gateway drug. And then... Um, I think this was like 2013, 2014, right? Yeah. And uh, okay. <clears throat> and that really made a strong impression on us. And, and I think that desire never really left us. I think that's when we really... Fermentation just became a word that we said every day, you know, for one reason or another. We left the restaurant together and we traveled all around the country for months and months, uh, staging at restaurants everywhere, eating at restaurants everywhere, um, looking for the next opportunity that would allow us to really plug into a local agricultural scene and just never found it. I just mm. didn't didn't see it at any of the places that we went. Um, didn't see any strong possibilities for it. So it wasn't it wasn't long before we realized that we were going to take the things that had fascinated us, also things that we had not yet in any sense of the word conquered or mastered, like the miso fermentation, the vinegar fermentation, and start to get really serious about that. And I think it wasn't that it didn't, it, that those that the possibility didn't exist anywhere else. I think it was just that we realized how connected we were to this part of the country, the mid-Atlantic, mm. and just really you know, you kind of get a repertoire of ingredients that you're used to working with. And, you know, we had already developed a lot of relationships with growers. And sometimes, you know, seeing citrus in California was like kind of foreign. It just didn't, it it just, the food that was here already was such a bounty that it just, we kind of missed seeing those items, I guess, and wanted to get deeper into like preserving them, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because fermentation, like I feel like in the, in the last, like, well, what year was this that you like actually started the company? The very end of 2015 was, I mean, okay. we formed an LLC yeah. and we had Got it. little pilot batches going in our buddy's restaurant basements. 
Okay. And yeah, I was what I was going to say is like I think fermentation had been kind of growing in popularity, you know, over the the years and people were sort of interested in in fermentation, but but vinegar like I before I met you, I didn't know anybody making vinegar. Like was that a, a did you recognize that as like okay, wait, that's the thing no one's doing. Like other companies are making sauerkraut, right? Other people are making um kombucha. Yes, and frankly, you know the people that had those companies in our area, they're like, they're all our friends. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I guess, you know, there's always room for more. Um, you know, we always, I would never be mad if another local vinegar company opened up because, you know, to me, that just means that there's a market that can support, you know, different people doing things different ways. But, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, we thought, we also had a really high level of respect for the people like, uh, number one sons in DC or Hex in Baltimore. And we thought, you know, they're doing it so well. Why don't we work on something that, um, that they're not that, and, and quite honestly, you know, all the things that we do are also really dependent on not, uh, requiring a lot of labor, or mm. I should say a lot of, a lot of handholding and initial, investment and time uh we always thought that the greatest multiplier on our effort uh or or on our effort to fulfill our sort of core mission of buying as much as we could from the farmers that we respected um was to figure out how to to take something that we could make a hundred gallon batch of quickly and then just steer carefully through months and months of fermentation um and in so doing always have this very small company just the two of us and uh still have the impact that we're looking for right so you mentioned months and months of fermentation um if people are listening you know a lot of people listen to the show that are interested in farming and and agriculture and and maybe haven't really thought about the process of um vinegar making before um can one of you kind of break down what it means to make vinegar, just like the basic process. Sure. Um, so vinegar is a, as defined, vinegar is acetic acid at at least 4% solution. So um, to make acetic acid, you need to start by making alcohol, which is why you often see wine vinegar or even apple cider vinegar. Both of those um come from fruits, they have a lot of sugar. And if you have a lot of sugar, you can make a high percentage of alcohol. So we would take apple cider, um, allow it to go bad, so to speak, turn it into alcohol. And then the second step would be to turn that alcohol into vinegar by means of a bacteria called acetobacter, which you essentially inoculate the wine with and um it's the bacteria itself will go in simple way of eats alcohol and a byproduct is essentially acetic acid so okay. um the first step is an oxygen deprived step and the second step is an open air as much oxygen as possible and that's kind of it 
And the the bacteria you're talking about that it 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 kind of like there's a mother. It kind of looks like a like a scoby in a in kombucha, right? It's it's kind of a funny thing. So that scoby is not actually the bacteria. That floating ah. raft is a biofilm that is a signifier of the presence of the bacteria. So that's a byproduct okay. too, where it kind of uh, the cellulose that that biofilm is made of is sort of a a byproduct of the bacteria doing its thing. So if you see that, you know that you're on the right track. But that thing itself isn't what will create vinegar, if that makes sense. And if you cut a piece off of that and use that to inoculate another batch, like people often do with SCOBY, they'll peel off a layer or Mm -hmm. scissor off a piece of the uh, mother to spread out. There's a very good chance that it's carrying a high load of the bacteria that you're looking for. Or in the case of kombucha, the mixed uh, sort of uh, aggregation of of bac- different bacteria and yeast that you're looking for. So it's not like it's not the bacteria. It's not like the bacteria is not very present and all over that. It's just not a necessary ingredient. It's kind of like the home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's such a fascinating process. For, I mean, all fermentation is just so weird and magical. <laughs> it's, it, you know, I, I always try to stay away from the word magical because it's science. <laughs> and so I'm like, that's true. You know, like grumpy. Yeah. Like I say it just made a grumpy well, face because it's no, like, you know, I sound like a grump, but it is magical because it's, it's how, like, the whole thing is magic, but yeah. <laughs> at the same time, it's science too. So. Yeah, right. I think that that's a really fun conversation to have though too, because, you know, our understanding of the, our scientific understanding of the process is probably just about at the exact midpoint between somebody who's never fermented anything yeah. and, you know, somebody in some corporate or academic role you know, teaching organic chemistry who really can explain to you what's going on. And right. so I think anything that's past our level of of actual uh, chemistry or biology knowledge, that's, you know, that part of it, that gray area we can call magic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, and how long does the process usually take? Um, it really depends on a lot of different things. We get that question a lot. You know, you can turn... Uh, about a bottle of wine into vinegar in a week, a week and a half. Um, You know, once you start working with 50 gallons, 100 gallons, 200 gallons, that's going to take a longer time um, just because it's so much more greater volume. Um, When you are uh, talking about developing flavor and you know, some, some vinegars we like to age for a while because um, they, you know, start to taste better. You know, we're all familiar with balsamic. It's a 15 years, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of different things will start to change the older that the vinegar gets. Um, so I guess that's the best answer. I would. Yeah, it varies. Yeah. On average, ours takes, ours takes, I would say, six months to over a year. I would say wow. the average age of something that we have in a bottle ready to sell is a year. Is yeah, a year. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty serious. Um, okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back.
This episode of The Farm Report is brought to you by Steward. It's tough for local farms, ranches, fisheries, and producers to access the capital they need to propel themselves forward or to sustain themselves at all. Steward is transforming agriculture by equipping regenerative farms and food producers with the resources they need to grow. Founded in 2017, Steward offers flexible loans and expert support services to human-scale agriculture businesses that are looking to scale their operations, improve the health of their lands, and bolster local food systems. But they don't do it alone. Their innovative lending platform brings together a community of values-driven individuals who join in their mission by participating in loans that fuel this growth. Learn more, apply for a loan, or lend support at gosteward.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I'm talking to Sarah Canizio and Isaiah Billington, the founders of Keepwell Vinegar. So we were talking a lot about um, how you make the vinegar, and I want to talk more about where the ingredients come from, like how you work with farms um, and and um, that relationship. So well, first of all, do you even you have so many different kinds of vinegar? Have you ever counted like the different varieties? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's there's barrels of stuff that are just aging in the factory that are are just not on any list or not on any website or not for sale in any way. <laughs> um, some things that are you know so cool, we want to try and hold on to that for ten years, and maybe one day we'll sell a super reserved version of the vinegar. And there's some things that. Maybe we didn't really like it and just think maybe we hold on to that and age it for a few years. It'll deepen and get to a point where we're really satisfied with it. Uh, and we used to try to limit ourselves, but, you know, because, you know, one of the funny things about a business is the actual packaging is sort of uh, more complicated than you think. And we used to think, oh, well, you know, we use these labels and it's it's hard to get new labels every time you want to do a new batch and blah, blah, blah. But now we kind of have a new step in our labeling process. So we're just like, yeah, let's make every vinegar we want now. <laughs> so <laughs> I think if you're a chef ordering from us this week, you probably have roughly 50 things. Wow. Uh, okay. Between all the vinegar and koji driven fermentations. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a lot. So so when you when you're deciding what to make, um, are you usually basing it on what you're seeing at the farms you work with, like what they have available? Or are you saying like, you know what, we really want to make a ginger um, vinegar. Like, can you grow ginger for us next year? Like talk a little bit about how that process usually works. Well, it will frequently be that uh, a chance conversation with the farmer uh, reacting to their reality will cause a new flavor to show up or a new variety to show up for us. Um, we never really had access to persimmons from Next Step Produce. It's a farm we work with a lot. And uh, suddenly they had a whole lot of persimmons that they didn't have anybody to sell to um, about 18, 16 months ago. Yeah. You know, when every restaurant in America was shut down, more or less. Uh. Um, you know, we are, will always be a great place to uh, unload tomatoes at that time when every farm's harvest is peaking, um, will always be a great place to 
take your cider if you've got if you're just if you're pulling tons of of uh, apples off the tree and you've got this product mix and you're selling fresh apples to restaurants and through farmers markets and you're making cider and you've just got more tree run fruit or more number two fruit that's got to get pressed like we're there that's sort of like that's always a big buzz for us is to make a connection like that um and i don't i think five percent of the time if that will turn around and say hey you know what we really would be really cool if we made this let's go try to find the product yeah uh, we have you know a pretty short list of growers that we work with uh, maybe a dozen on a regular basis. But even so, they're all really biodiverse and they've got a ton of different crops. And um, so, I mean, I think if we never expanded our list beyond that, we'd always be finding new things, new ways to work together and embrace our process to their output really closely. Yeah. you And you mentioned, you know, this idea of like a lot of these farms are working with restaurants. And um, I was thinking about like how your process and your product is so different from like what a restaurant might be looking for in its produce. Like, um, do you think that um, this kind of model fills a gap for farms where like, can, I, I'd imagine you can take produce that doesn't look as good, right? Like it doesn't have to be yeah. pretty on a plate. Um does that happen a lot where farmers are like, I can't sell this? Cause um. Um, it's definitely happened. And that, and that is never, you know, not the, all, almost all the persimmons that we use are, you know, number twos. We can use kind of lesser quality garlic to make the black garlic for the black garlic vinegar. Um, we don't really need the most perfect produce. We just need, produce that is high in sugar so we Mm. can't make vinegar out of just anything you know um and some and some fruits don't really make great vinegar with the way that we make vinegar um something like raspberries or blackberries unfortunately they don't make great vinegar for us because we have a pretty long open air process and and um they don't really have that much sugar either. So it's kind of this funny thing where uh, the, the, the way that what we can use, the way that it kind of falls into place has, has developed over the last five years as our, our business has kind of grown. Um, so that we've kind of narrowed down like the parameters of what we can and can't use, but luckily it, it does end up being a lot that maybe might fall out of what a restaurant can use which is good. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and I, I just was, um, I want to talk more about sort of like the relationship with farmers, but I also realized we didn't even talk about like, you know, we're talking about sourcing ingredients for your vinegar, but you also make miso, um, which is, and soy sauce, right. <laughs> which are like to- different categories as well. Um, and, um, for that you're, I mean, the, you're sourcing a lot of soybeans, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, did you have farmers that you were working with that were already growing soy? Like, is that something that it was is easy for you to get in in the Mid Atlantic? It yeah, feels I very mean, different to me than looking for a farm. Like, you're already working with all these farmers that grow sort of diverse fruits and vegetables, right? But like, mm-hmm. soybeans is it's kind of different. Soybeans is really wacky because you can where we are in central Pennsylvania southeastern pennsylvania 
you don't i mean you can almost not you know throw a potato oh, without true. without finding a, a soybean field and some of those people are doing their best you know some of those those growers are really committed to organic practices um but you know what's interesting about that is that even so you're still going to be plugging into that corn soy rotation um working with guys who are mainly growing for feed or what have you so we've got you know we've got a couple of really interesting growers up here that are organic farmers um that are we're really always interested to hear about um the different ways that i mean they do fermentation on their own farms with like fish and all sorts of stuff to make their own fertilizer it's really this wild wow. um, and then you know basically as much as we can afford to um, we'll also get some some th- that which is like a staple you really move through a lot of volume of from a farm like Next Step Produce or somebody else who's just really trying to work with legumes and fit that into a real small family farm, um, you know, like the kind of farm you would see on a commercial for a uh, company that never actually works with a farm like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is wild. It, it, it's it's they're so available that they're available across the full spectrum of different growers in the area from you know tiny operations to the big industrial ones yeah yeah it's an interesting um different like i was just thinking it might be like a totally different um but i i also forgot that next step also grows um soybeans and it it does seem like something that um like you said there's maybe i think maybe in the next few years there might be more um places where they're like more incorporated into diverse um rotations and farms that are doing other things because i mean soybeans are they're they're kind of amazing right they're extremely amazing and i would also say that you know we get an email probably what you know food trends kind of come and go and i think that we get some inquiries about certain food items as they become kind of popular and whatever article you know was just written but uh we we've gotten a lot of inquiries about you know where do you get your soybeans i want to make tempeh at home um and you know the soybeans for making tempeh need to be um kind of halved or de-hauled which is a somewhat tedious process to do on your own. Um, so we, you know, there's definitely a market for this, I guess you would say a higher end soybean. Um, <laughs> cause it, they are amazing. And, and I think as people are moving toward, you know, eating less meat, soy of course is a, is a super high protein option. Right. Right. Soybeans and not, not even higher end, just like soybeans used as a soybean kind of, right? Yeah. Like, like, like yeah. The, the, the rest of the system doesn't like sort of appreciate that it's even a soybean. It's just yes. like manufactured into something else. We um, That's actually but, in the beginning when we used to try to find soybeans, it was sometimes the, the grower was, was like shocked that we just, that we, <laughs> like what we wanted and how right. like, you want how many pounds? I can't even give you that few. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. I don't. Trying to buy a thousand pounds of soybeans from some of these guys, they're just like, I sure, I guess, just take it. <laughs> they're like, they're like uh, I don't, does not compute. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, so 
you know, you when you were talking about the the origins of Keepwell, you talked about um wanting to kind of um do something within this like local agricultural um landscape. And like I I, I want to hear from you like why that matters. Like why do you, you you've sort of set up your business where every relationship you have is direct, right? With somebody within the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, why does that matter to you? <laughs> well, you know, I, something that I've always said, and it's probably not as clever as I think it is, is that um, if you don't eat food that's memorable, then you're more likely to like not remember that you ate it. And, uh, and I just, I think that, that might have a lot to do with, uh, the disposability of food and, and nutrition and, and the unmooring of, you know, recipes and where they come from and where they might go and why we cook things a certain way from any kind of tradition or any kind of actual material constraint, like, you know, uh, the miles of travel to get to you or the effects that it had on, uh, from the inputs that were used to, to grow it. Um, and we're, we're so, you know, we're so online and things are so available and, you know, you can just click and things show up that we, it's really easy to forget that we do live in a time um, where we are still absolutely materially constrained by at the end of the day, you've every decision that you make does go back to the dirt. And when you forget that is when you start to, it's when you start to make like wacky food, even in the fermentation community, I think there are guys that'll like, they'll like make grow koji on, on X, you know, on an egg and then turn around and dehydrate and smoke that and then reconstitute it into a consomme and then, you know, serve that as a gelato. That's really, really can be really awesome. And I don't have a criticism for that in general. It's just not what we do. Um, but you know, the, your relationship to food and what tastes good and what makes you feel good um, is, is a thing that you can continue to define with your brain. You can taste as much with your brain and your set of experiences and your set of values and ideals as much as you taste with your tongue. Um, so it's really important to us to give people the, at least the opportunity to to plant or to root their experience with food uh, and their health in something that can be traced all the way back to the origin of the food and the practical effects of their decision when they, you know, spend a dollar with us or with the farms that we support. It's, it's something that I just find endlessly um, fulfilling to be able to, to, to take out a bottle of something that we made and know the person that grew it. And what, what I remember when we got it, I remember what that year was like. I remember how heavy that box was that I brought in. (laughs) Like, it's just, it's, it, it definitely means something to me to be able to have these relationships with the growers and to know, you know, what looks good this year. And, and then to, to take that. And then we, by the time that we are done with what we make, it's another year later and the whole thing is different. And Maybe we'll get that again and maybe we won't. And, it, you know, it's it's a, a genuine relationship with, you know, what you're eating 
and it's really fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have to wrap up, but um, before we do that, any, um, I guess I, w- I was going to ask you to sort of like, what are you thinking about going forward? Like I, I th- one of the things I love about your company is that you just create this amazing, amazing products for people and you're not like, oh, we're going to be this giant corporation. We're going to go do this. We're going to do this next. But you're like super ambitious as well. And it's not, those are, you know, not um, in conflict, I don't think. Um, what What is like the the future look like for Keepwell? Well, I think we never stop having the conversation about knowing when to stop growing. And, uh, you know, I think we, we feel really confident today that we continuously tailor our process and our selection and our, um, and even sort of our budget for our, you know, what you might call food costs in the industry, uh, in the restaurant industry, um, around the needs that, the exigencies that agriculture is presenting to us. And we're always on the lookout for when we, when we start to turn around and try to start tailoring what's happening on the farms or in the relationships with the growers to the needs of our process. And that's like the big sort of flashing red light for us. So, you know, because we're just feel so cautious about that, um, We've always, we have always wanted to grow very slowly. Um, not to mention, you know, it takes forever for all this stuff to get made. So there's a certain <laughs> limit on how much, how how quickly you can take uh, growth steps. Um, you know, there's there's certainly one big leap forward that has yet to happen for us. Um, there are too many things that we do that are that are silly and stupid, and you know, just driven by small hand power and just two little people, you know, running back and forth across a room. Um, and, and I think we could confidently say that if it never got past that, um, then we'd be happy. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Thanks for letting us, uh, get a little airy there. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Isaiah. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. For the last time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. 
Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.